welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, today we are going to resume Acts chapter 5 in verse 33. Uh, I've titled today's message for quite a difficult text uh, for us to comprehend in our culture, uh, even more difficult uh, for those who live in many other cultures. Uh, But I have titled today's message, uh, When There is Joy in Suffering. When there is joy in suffering. And uh, as, you, as you turn to Acts chapter 5, you've probably noticed that the last two Sundays uh, we, have, we have covered pretty large sections of Scripture, some pretty, some pretty large swaths. And that is partly due to the fact that just the interpretation of this courtroom scene uh, demands that we see the overarching narrative it's uh, very, very hard to comprehend this passage in, in tiny bits and pieces. So we're, we are kind of speeding through the second half of Acts chapter 5 as a race car would uh, in a straightaway. Uh, but if high speeds frighten you, don't worry when we turn the corner. There's a hairpin turn at chapter 6. And uh, we are definitely going to have to slow down to pay attention to some uh, critical details going forward. But today we return to the courtroom. It's the Supreme Court of Israel in the first century, uh, where last Sunday the apostles, they supplied eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony uh, that these 70 judges, uh, 70 priests of the Sanhedrin, the high court, uh, The apostles provided testimony that those priests stand guilty before God uh, for the high treason of crucifying his son. The Mosaic law prescribed in relation to any iniquity or sin, you'll find this in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, uh, the law prescribed in relation to iniquity that on the basis of Of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed. The priestly judges have just been accused by twelve. And Jesus' apostles next reassure them and us That though God will by no means leave the guilty, those guilty of sin, unpunished, uh, He has also made a way for us to be forgiven. Our sins can be forgiven through His Son bearing our guilt, our iniquities, our shame on the cross uh, in His body as He died. Consequently then, uh, the God of Israel has not changed. The the Lord our God who sits high on His lofty throne, highly exalted above all, He remains righteous in punishing sin. He is just in punishing our sins in Christ Jesus, but He also remains merciful to us. Therefore, the following principle, it was declared centuries early, earlier to Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, the enduring principle of Exodus chapter 34 uh, remains. This is immediately after Moses had had broken the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Moses had shattered them because of the gross sin of Israel. This immediately follows that. God responds by making new tablets. Carves out new tablets, places them into the hand of Moses. God says, now now let's try this again. Let's, Let's give it another whirl. Stating to Moses, quote, 
the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, uh, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is incredibly good news. Therefore, Moses' reaction was to, uh, quote, make haste and bow low toward the earth and worship. And doing so, while doing so, Moses also prayed to the Lord God, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. What love and goodness we see in the Exodus. Um, Last Sunday, we discovered that ultimately Peter does not deliver bad news to this court, but good news uh, while reasserting that God forgives us only in Christ Jesus, uh, exalting him, we are told, uh, verse 31, exalting him both as prince and savior. That is the news Peter has given them. Uh, So this is the status of the apostles' closing argument in the courtroom, uh, this trial as we find ourselves now in verse 33. This is, this is what they have presented, uh, just as Peter had on a previous occasion in Acts 4 verse 12, uh, months earlier, he said, for there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. This, this is God's verdict. There is salvation in in Christ alone. Uh, And like all of us gathered today, uh, these priests must agree with God's verdict. Acknowledging the the evidence of each of our lives. The evidence of our lives confirms, yeah, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of sin. Uh, Father, grant me a pardon of my sins in Christ Jesus, your son. And folks, this, this is repentance. It's, it's agreeing with God uh, and turning away from our sins uh, to confess our Lord uh, Jesus as Savior. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As I begin to read our passage, uh, Peter stated last week in verse 31 that God has granted repentance to Israel, uh, but apparently not to all of Israel. In in fact, consistent with everything we see throughout Israel's history, uh, God only grants repentance to a small remnant of Israel, a portion of Israel. Uh, So how does the high court rule? Very interesting here. Do they say, this is great news. Forgiveness of my sins in Jesus. Do they agree? Do they repent of their sins? Uh, For this answer, let's look to verse 33 of our passage to see how it is written. Luke writes, But when the council heard this, they were cut to the quick And intended to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the apostles outside for a short time. And Gamaliel said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed after him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you may not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So as I made mention last week, uh, God was about to open another door. This this time the door is opened by Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a door which allows the apostles to keep on teaching and preaching. Um, this, this Gamaliel, he is a he is truly an interesting character. Uh, there is preserved a lengthy reference to him in Jewish rabbinic literature. It's called called the Talmud. The Talmud is is Jewish. Uh, religious tradition, rabbinic written tradition, and recorded in that tradition, that literature, it states, quote, when our teacher Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. Wow. So Gamaliel was very highly exalted or esteemed among those who had recorded traditional Jewish literature. They they thought much of him. Other written records reveal that Gamaliel was, was very prominent in both Roman politics and Jewish religion. Therefore, we, we can conclude when Gamaliel's most famous pupil... What's his name? Saul, right? Gamaliel's most famous pupil named Saul is later converted to Christianity uh, and becomes the apostle Paul. And after Paul was arrested by the Jews, that that would be some 25 years later, uh, there is a reason that he tells them, those Jews, in Acts 22 verse 3, He says, I was educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you all are today. That's Paul's defense. Consequently, Paul invokes the name of Gamaliel, the notoriety of Gamaliel, in his own defense to insist, you know, you men, I'm not a theological hack here, nor, nor ignorant of what the scriptures teach. In fact, I learned from the finest of teachers in Israel. You can say, you know, his name's even printed on my diploma. Have you seen it? Gamaliel. So, so Paul, in essence, states, you know, I know the law. I know what it says. I learned from Gamaliel how the law given to Moses in Israel demands perfect obedience. How the law on those tablets requires perfect obedience. And not just those ten, but all of God's commands. And therefore, Paul's conclusion is, we find throughout Scripture and in his defense, it is only through being clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, his Son, the sinless perfection of Christ, that we can be justified as righteous before God. It's only by being washed in Jesus' blood that we can be seen as perfect and obedient in our Father in heaven. Uh, a, A life of sinless perfection is God's demand. Only Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. Folks, this is the apostle's defense, the apostle Paul's defense. Uh, So the question that is inherent to our passage that 
always arises here, always arises in this discussion, uh, is this. Had Gamaliel been convinced the apostles who were on trial on this day, was he convinced that they are right? A few make that conclusion because in verse 39, Gamaliel cautions his peers through saying, you know, what if this messianic movement here is actually of God? If it is, you cannot overthrow it. And you, you might even find yourselves struggling against God. Could verse 39 then be an early sign of Gamaliel's conversion? Like we find of another Pharisee, his name was Nicodemus. John chapter 3, he came visiting Jesus under the cover of darkness to start off. Um, But then he's seen after the crucifixion taking Christ's body for burial. That was Nicodemus. Um, Gamaliel here, is he having a faith crisis, a moment uh, where he is beginning to believe in Christ? I highly doubt it. I highly doubt it. You may decide to disagree here, uh, but my deduction is that uh, if Gamaliel actually had ever been converted to Christianity, uh, number one, Paul would have appealed to that very fact decades later at his own trial. Paul would not have merely said, you know, I was strictly educated under Gamaliel, but... But because Gamaliel was so highly respected among the Jews, Paul would have also included, and you know what Gamaliel came to believe. Gamaliel came to the same conclusion as I. Uh, He too trusted in Jesus. Uh, But Paul does not offer that in his courtroom defense, appealing to having the same faith as exercised by Gamaliel. Uh, No, but only to the fact that he was strictly educated under Gamaliel. Uh, So if Gamaliel had ever trusted in Christ, Paul's leaving that out at his trial, that that would have been a huge omission. Very, very unlikely. Add to that, additionally, number two, if Gamaliel had actually converted from Pharisaic Judaism to what early Jews viewed as an apostate religion, Christianity, Gamaliel's name would have been stricken from the Jewish Talmud rather than celebrated by the rabbis after his death. Uh, For these two reasons uh, alone, I have to highly doubt that Gamaliel has a seed of faith that has sprouted in our passage. It just doesn't seem to be reality. Um, rather, Rather, not all, but most theological resources I have reviewed uh, conclude that Gamaliel's sighting of you know, two pass insurrections, both of which miserably failed. Uh, one, the guy named Thetis, the second, like him, Judas of Galilee. Th- these seem to indicate that Gamaliel also projects that this early movement of Christianity will eventually fail. Um, it appears to me that the Gamaliel's warning to the council, you know, not, not to risk find themselves struggling against God, uh, it seems to be rather a brilliantly calculated rhetorical device designed to persuade the Sanhedrin not to impulsively execute these 12. Let off the throttle a little bit, guys. We execute these 12... We could thereby discredit the entire court in the eyes of the people who still find the apostles and the early Christians, they hold them with high esteem. We just learned that in the last chapter. The early Christians at this point were very highly esteemed by all. You want to cut off the twelve? No, dial it back a little bit. Uh, One theologian named uh, Eckerd Schnabel states, quote, Gamaliel's speech is not a speech in defense of the apostles, but in defense of the integrity of the Sanhedrin. 
Ultimately, then, Gamaliel's concern, uh, it's, it's preserving the reputation of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and he knows at this time Christians are, are far too popular to follow through with this mass execution of their leaders. Uh, that is soon to change. That is soon to change. And the Sanhedrin's interests, well, they're going to be much better served by first discrediting this Christian movement. Uh, And to achieve this, they will later employ some false testimony against a man named Stephen, which they are going to use to justify stoning him to death. That's where their heart is, and that will be the point in chapter 7 when Gamaliel's star pupil, again named Saul, will be introduced and begins leading a great persecution against the church. You must first discredit the disciples uh, before beginning to kill them. The weight of the evidence seems to imply the speech by Gamaliel is meant to preserve the strength of the Sanhedrin to which he is a member. He belongs. Uh, In this case, God uses an unbelieving Gamaliel as his divine instrument to spare Jesus' disciples so that they can continue proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Regardless of your view on Gamaliel, uh, God often manipulates unbelievers to further his work, and to deliver his people. That is one reason that we pray, right? Prayer is a big topic that we are, we are beginning to emphasize going forward. Uh, the point is found in Proverbs 21 and verse 1, where we read that like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, uh, he turns the heart wherever he chooses. God turns the heart wherever he desires. Um, And God's sovereignty over every human heart is one of the reasons that Nehemiah in the Old Testament could confidently pray concerning his king, Artaxerxes. He could pray, quote, Lord, make your servant, referring to himself, Nehemiah says, make your servant successful today and grant me favor before the king. That prayer reveals Nehemiah not only read the book of Proverbs, he actually believed the Proverbs. John MacArthur identifies this as a pattern scattered throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Concerning Nehemiah, MacArthur writes, God sovereignly used this relationship between a Gentile and a Jew to deliver his people such as he did with Joseph, Daniel, Esther, and Mordecai, etc., etc., etc. God does it repeatedly in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I might even add how with Moses and the Exodus, how God uh, hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would let the people go um, and free Israel that they might escape. Uh, again, God in the New Testament has not changed. God does not change. uh, And God's sovereignty has enormous implications as to how we pray. Our application. uh, Because God is sovereign over the heart of unbelievers. In our current illustration, it's Gamaliel that God uses to accomplish this, to spare the lives of his apostles, because God is sovereign over the heart of unbelievers, uh, we too can petition God in times of distress or or any time we need favor, uh, knowing that God is Lord and Master over every heart and soul that he creates. You realize that God creates the human soul, right? You don't think you were just floating around in the universe until you you popped into your mother's womb. No, He creates your soul. He gives you a soul, knits it to your body in the womb. And uh, that is how you become uh, a living and breathing being. Um, 
God creates us. He he owns our soul in a, in a sense. And uh, when we are in desperate desperate situations, folks, we aren't counting on blind luck. The 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 idea that man's soul is free to do whatever he pleases and that God can never intervene nor violate it, uh, um, that, that man is inviolably free to do whatever he pleases is a concept that you will never find expressed on the pages of Scripture. That each man has a will and exercises it, yes, that is without dispute, but the idea that man has a free will and that God Almighty cannot and will not override that to achieve his sovereign purposes, including redemption of sins, that, that, that is complete and utter nonsense. It's nonsense. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Lord our God is, is the all-powerful creator of the universe, created me and you. He turns man's heart wherever he pleases, albeit not always where we pleases. But when we pray for doors to be open for the gospel and hearts to be open to our message, we learned this in adult Bible study this morning on evangelism. When we pray for doors to be open for the gospel and hearts to be open to our message, and when we pray for people to be saved, or when we pray for circumstances to turn our way, we can pray with confidence that God can and shall, according to his will, intervene. If God did not exercise power to turn men's hearts wherever he pleases, why would Nehemiah or anyone else ever pray? What's God going to do about it if he has not the power to intervene? Why would you pray for your family members to be saved? Asking God to do something that he cannot do, if that were the case. It, it isn't rational. It isn't rational. Uh, as I stated this past Wednesday evening at prayer meeting, um, sovereignty is an essential component of prayer and our worship. Uh, we pray because we know God can, and we worship because we know that God has accomplished everything he pleases on our behalf, according to his will. You, you might be asking right now, what's, what's this got to do with our text? The passage in Acts 5, it's not specifically about prayer, nor especially about worship in any way. That, that's true. That's true. But who is in control of these courtroom proceedings? That answer is of enormous concern to us and to the apostles. Is this ultimately God's courtroom? Or is the high priest directing the proceedings? It's all in his control. Or has it been Gamaliel who exercised control over everything that has happened here? Surely, it doesn't appear as if the apostles are in charge. They're in handcuffs. And why does this answering of the question even matter? Um, think of it this way. Who are the apostles to credit for the changing of their circumstances today? When this all began, the apostles watched as the Sanhedrin was, well, they were cut to the quick. That, that phrase indicates they were infuriated and intending to kill them. That's how, the, how it all started. The apostles saw their anger 
Now, the inclinations of 70 priests to murder the apostles, it had to have been openly verbalized. Imagine 70 priests on a council interrogating 12 apostles. They could see the anger. They could hear it verbalized. How do we know? Well, it's because Gamaliel found it necessary to stand up in the middle of them and stop it. He called a time out. He called it to intervene. And we see in verse 34 that the apostles were standing in the middle of the courtroom and watched as, quote, Gamaliel stood up in the council and gave orders to put the apostles outside for a time. Move them out. What a shocking turn of events. As they are escorted out from the courtroom, I, um, I imagine they were probably saying to one another, the apostles, they're probably saying, oh, we're so dead. Yeah, we're, we're goners. You hear what they're saying? Yeah, it's over. It's over. But then later, in verse 40... After the apostles are called back in, quote, the priests merely flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. Well, what caused that turn of events? They come back in and everything's changed. Now, when I say merely flogging, I mean that only in the sense that, well, they didn't kill them. They received light punishment in contrast to being executed. Flogging itself is, is a very brutal form of punishment, a very painful, a very dangerous. But the Apostle Paul himself, when you read his uh, autobiography, uh, he informs us that he received the 39 lashes of a flogging on three different occasions, five different occasions. Um, therefore, uh, this assures that, that a man can survive, normally survive uh, a flogging, uh, that degree of torture. So it's survivable most of the time. Uh, but once hearing the command to no longer speak in the name of Jesus, you know, the apostles must have been astonished. They probably looked at one another and said, so we're not getting killed today? What changed? What changed? And who precisely should the apostles credit for sparing their lives? Oh, thank you, Mr. High Priest. I, I always knew you were a reasonable guy and you'd come around to, uh, to our way of seeing things, given a little time. Or, or Gamaliel saved us. Oh, Gamaliel, he's our man. Uh, does Gamaliel receive credit from the apostles for this turn of events? Or, or should they feel indebted to Gamaliel now? Uh, so they owe, they owe him a big one. Hey, we really owe you a big one, buddy. Or, or worse, this would be even worse. Are the apostles merely to credit time, space, and chance? Was their release simply a random turn of events? Should the apostles credit the change of their circumstances to, to a random universe and uncontrolled particles? A chain of events. Or is it the Lord our God who turns man's heart wherever he wishes, who ultimately receives the glory for the outcome of this trial. I, it is God. For Peter will later write, as revealed during our scripture reading, 1 Peter chapter 4, 
the fiery ordeal comes about for our testing. And if any of us suffers as a Christian, we are to glorify God. For our suffering is according to the will of God, and uh, conclusion is we are to keep on rejoicing. It's all God. How could Peter possibly write these words if God just surrenders control of our circumstances? Likewise, is such joy in our suffering, such joy in suffering can only come knowing that our Father in heaven never surrenders control. The outcome of these proceedings was never subject to time, space, and chance. Christ had never abandoned the destiny of his apostles to the whims of Gamaliel. Christ wasn't seated at the right hand of God saying, well, I kind of hope Gamaliel can come through here. That, that's not God. That's not the God of the universe. And therefore, our Lord's brother James writes, We can consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, uh, ultimately having its perfect result. It's all of God. Suffering is of God. God remained in sovereign control of these courtroom deliberations the entire time. He, He never took his hand off the wheel. Clearly on this day, you know, a random earthquake or a lightning bolt isn't going to do. We're in a courtroom. The only way to alter the decision of 70 justices is through their hearts. They wanted to kill the apostles. But using the reasoning of Gamaliel, God tells them, you're all overruled. And just as Joseph had told his brothers in Genesis 50 and verse 20 in the land of Egypt, what you intended for evil, God intended for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve the lives of many. That's how God works. In our current scenario, it's 12. 12 apostles, it wasn't yet their time. Think about this. Some of you are probably still on the fence. Think about this. Have you ever prayed to God for the outcome of a judge's verdict? Or for a courtroom jury to show mercy? Start a little simpler here. Have you ever prayed to God that you'll be let off from a traffic ticket? If you have, you've agreed that God is sovereign over every human heart, or else you wouldn't have prayed. And God's sovereignty always gives hope. The fact that God can intervene always brings hope. By contrast, the the unrealistic assertion that man's will is sovereign and just remains free from any interference by God, um, uh, that every man is captain captain of his own ship, uh, that conclusion provides no hope. Especially no hope when we are suffering and there's no explanation for what we must endure. Therefore, I I would find that there are three conditions that will provide joy to any Christian who is suffering persecution for the faith. Three conditions I find in this passage. Number one, There is joy in suffering 
when you recognize that God always remains in full control of your every circumstance. The Bible-believing Christian can wholeheartedly believe that my circumstances remain subject to God's will. And according to him, they can change. If God wants to change the outcome, he can. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But God is in control. You know, I can't think of anything more horrifying than when your persecutors hoist a sword above your head as they would with some of the apostles as is still done in some locations today. can think of nothing more horrifying than to worry what God's lost control here. Or, or when a Christian's house has been burned down, as is happening today in Sudan, and in parts of India as well, For someone to have to ask, why is this strange thing happening to me? Can anyone help? Or or when your personal property is confiscated, as the writer of Hebrews tells his audience, uh, reminds them that you joyfully received the confiscation, the seizure of your property There's joy because we know that God is in control. You know, I want to caution us as as tolerance for Christian morals has digressed quickly in the United States over the last 10 years. I'd like like to caution us on this. Um, Do not conclude, I am an American and this will never happen to me. Or that no person sitting here today will ever lose their job because they are faithful to the Christian faith. Don't conclude that. I hope not. But that type of thinking would be a little bit naive, folks. But you can endure persecution with joy knowing that God remains in complete control. Complete control when your property is seized. You can respond, I guess I didn't need it. Number two, there is joy whenever we are suffering, assuming it is for the name of Christ. In our scripture reading, from 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14, Peter assured, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And this is what is happening in Acts chapter 5. And, and when Christ returns, the apostles will be rewarded, and those who are martyred will receive the greatest reward of all. God had not lost control with any of the martyrs. So Peter writes, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. This joy is promised only to those who suffered trials and persecution for a faithful testimony to Christ. That's the caveat. It's not the same, writes Peter, uh, for those who suffer as a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Uh, If your suffering is due to your sin or bad decisions, like maybe 50 years of chain smoking, uh, don't expect the same joy. There's self-inflicted suffering sometimes due to our attitude and our behavior and our sin. But Peter writes, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So number one, there is joy in suffering, knowing that God always remains in control of your circumstances. And number two, there is joy in suffering 
when it is a direct result of your truthful, yet kind and faithful testimony to Christ. That suffering is categorized as Christian suffering, suffering for being a good steward of the gospel. Number three, there is joy in suffering as a Christian when that suffering reveals that you are truly in the game. Who wants to be a bench sitter? Acts chapter 5 and verse 41 After being flogged, we read the apostles went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Folks, folks, a lot of people talk the talk. But once you have been flogged, you depart saying, I have walked the walk. The apostles depart knowing, guys, we are really in this thing. We are part of what Christ is doing. They can say, boy, those 39 lashes, boy, they really, really hurt. Bad. You know, it's going to take weeks just for these wounds to quit oozing and for the scabs to fall off of our backs. But the scars I bear for the name of Jesus will always remain. But the scars also serve as irrefutable evidence that we belong to him. Fairweather fans won't bear these marks. They'll forfeit the game. There are a lot of people who say they belong to Christ. But only those who suffer can supply evidence. They can display it on their backs. They earn their stripes, so to speak. The Apostle Paul told the churches in Galatia, quote, from now on, Let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. There is a joy and a reassurance in suffering persecution for Jesus that we in America simply do not know. Does anyone here really think that they've really suffered for Jesus? Friday, uh, Scott Kapke and I uh, were having lunch in a local restaurant when I suffered a dirty look from a server. As I normally do when I pay my bill, I leave a nice tip, invite them to church, uh, give a gospel tract, and politely invited that server to church. Was I polite, Scott? Thank you. (laughs) You know, nine times out of ten, that's received quite well. They may go in the rotary file as they depart, but at least they're given the gospel. This fellow was not happy. and uh, But all I got out of it was a rude rejection. And already having prepared most of this sermon, I turned to Scott afterwards and I asked, you know, I, I wish I could have come away with at least a black eye or something. I can tell you, you know, I promise I won't complain to your manager. Uh, there's even in a there's even an extra twenty bucks in it if you leave a permanent mark. No, I, I don't have a martyr complex, but sometimes I ask myself, when my Lord Jesus returns, will I have anything to show Him? that I too want to be counted faithful among his people? Will I even have calluses on my hands for serving Jesus? The apostles depart rejoicing because 
they can now say, I bear the scars that prove that I belong to Jesus Christ. That's something to rejoice over, folks. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What glory. What glory. At this time, I'm going to ask our elders and deacons to come forward and distribute to us the Lord's Supper. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 um, that we are to examine ourselves before taking the bread and the cup, uh, examine ourselves for sin. When we do so, we are to remember that God has forgiven us much, very much. And uh, perhaps we would ask, are we in response faithful to Him? Do we belong to Christ? Do we rejoice even if we lose all things? And the Bible assures that for Christians, there's a great joy in much suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what goodness you've shown us in the body and blood of your Son to to remove our sins as far from us as the East is from the West, uh, that we might rejoice in uh, the salvation that we share together as your body. And uh, as this world uh, tends to devour Christians, Lord, prepare us and uh, make us ready. Though we, uh, though we do seek peace and mercy and extend uh, the gospel to all, uh, help us to be prepared, uh, even as the apostles did, to suffer the loss of all things, if necessary. Yet, Lord, as uh, you have not called us to that sacrifice yet, uh, or be glorified in all that we have, all that we do, all that we enjoy. Use it for your glory and for yourself and for that of your Son, Lord. Bless the fellowship meal we're about to share. And uh, Lord, remind us to be thankful of, of every bite we take and uh, the bounty that we enjoy and uh, the goodness that you have showered us with each and every day of our lives. Uh, for this, we are greatly faithful. Lord, be glorified through your Son. Amen. <laughs>